All right, so we're up and running. Good evening, everybody. Uh, just a couple of announcements, which I'll hopefully remember to make at the end also. But you're here. You get the benefit of making sure that you at least get this announcement once. First of all, just a reminder that we do not have Shior next Wednesday because of Era Thanksgiving. So we have two more in this cycle, which will be the following two Wednesdays after that, but none this coming Wednesday evening. That's number one. Number two, thankfully, we have overcome whatever technical glitches we need and the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals, which is co-sponsoring all of this series. We were able to get all of the recordings of the shiurim that we've had so, so far onto our website. If you're not yet a member, definitely encourage membership. You can at least register. Our web address is on every one of the source sheets that I give for any shiur. Anyway, this is my, this is my card. I actually do have cards. But, but, but I prefer to use my source sheet as my card because I think it's, it's more meaningful in terms of what I do. So all of them, if you want to go, you can just go to our website, jewishideas.org, and click on online learning, and you'll find the shiurim as well as the source sheets all posted there. So on that happy note, we move to the book of Shemuel, book of Samuel, which is a pretty dramatic and exciting book, so much so that a Barbanel, our, our, our running hero, he apologizes at the beginning of his commentary. He says, look... If you've ever read his commentaries or even just held it in your hand and never read it, he's not brief. He tends to write incredibly, incredibly long. He was able to. He was very wealthy, so he could afford the ink. Many of our commentators were so poor they had to write very cryptically and with, with acronyms to make sure that they could afford the little ink that they had. Abarbanel was able to afford a lot of ink, and he used it very, very well. He apologizes at the beginning of his commentary to Samuel. I apologize, dear reader, if this will be even longer than my normal style... But this is just my favorite book. And then he writes a fabulous commentary on the, on the book of Shmuel. And then he's absolutely right. We discussed last time with Gid'on, and this is going to kind of tie us together into, into where, you know, where we've been, where we're going. The issue of monarchy has been percolating. With Gid'on, we saw last time how people came to him and said, we're sick and tired of this judge thing. It's terrible. It doesn't work. Every time a judge dies, the next one... Next cycle kicks off, there's more anarchy, new invaders, there's nothing we could do. We want you to be our king. And Gideon, even though it sounds like he really sort of wanted to be king, at the end of the day he said, no, God is king. And he declined, much to the chagrin of the townsfolk of the nation. But that's what he did, and that was source, that's source number one. Again, this is just a review from, good evening, from last time. When he says in source one, Then the men of Israel said to Gidon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson as well. For you have saved us from the Midianites. But Gidon replied, I will not rule over you myself, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord alone shall rule over you. Gidon, besides his pious sentiments, he's right. This goes back to the Torah. In fact, we say this daily. In source number two, at the very end of what we call the Aziashir, or the Song at the Sea, uh, it's not source two, it's source four, excuse me. We conclude the song by saying, The Lord will reign forever and ever. Already moments after the exodus, here we are, sea just splits, Israelites are just leaving Egypt. They understand God is king. So this concept isn't just Gita Owens as a polite way of declining. This goes back literally to our very beginnings as a nation. So we discussed how the book of Judges is the first one to take on the issue of monarchy by setting up Gid'on as they wanted him. And his son, the only time that there was any succession at all in the book of Judges, was an absolute disaster. The son Abimelech, who massacred his own brothers, was a tyrant and eventually had to 
be knocked off himself. It's a violent and horrible story. So that's the anti-monarchy side of the book. But then there's a pro-monarchy side of the book that we also discussed. This is just reviewed from last time. Source 2, the very last verse of the entire book is, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did as he pleased. In other words, if we only had a king, man, it would have been so much better. We would have had stability. We would have had religious gain. Everything would have been nicer. We would not have had all these terrible stories of, of anarchy. So the book of Judges leaves it as a nuanced position where there are certain things that are good about a kingship and there are certain things that are very dangerous about it. Somebody raised the question last time, and I have to just address it frontally before we can move on. Somebody said, I even remember who, but he's not in the room, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave him be. But, and so the question came up, and it's a very important question. Isn't monarchy commanded by the Torah? <coughs> And if so, what in the world are the Israelites doing? A, with the savior judges. B, how could Gideon say no? C, how come nobody's just saying, hey, Torah commands kingship. Let's set ourselves up a king. So I said, I'll discuss it this time. Well, voila, kept my promises. Here we are. Source number three is the source. This is where, this is the passage that he was referring to. And it says, if after you have entered the land that the Lord your God has assigned to you and taken possession of it and settled in it, you decide, I will set a king over me and do as do all the nations about me. If after you've taken over the land, you decide that you want a king, you shall be free to set a king over yourself, one chosen by the Lord your God. Be sure to set as king over yourself, one of your own people. You must not set a foreigner over, over you, one who is not your kinsman, and so on and so forth. Is there a command for a king? It sounds like it's an option. It sounds like, again, this translation is biased in favor of this reading, by the way. In the Hebrew, it's slightly more ambiguous, which is why there's a force 10 debate already by the sages in the earliest layers of the Talmud and later layers and through the period of the medieval commentators to the present. Does the Torah say you must have a king? Or does the Torah say, if you would like a king, you may have one, and here are the rules that govern the king. But you never have to have a king at all. It is very clear that the book of Judges and the book of Samuel are both predicated on the idea that the Israelites did not have to set up a king. It was their choice. And once they chose it, then there are rules. And that's what, of course, the prophets are going to be dealing with. Rambam... Rambam rules that it is a commandment to have a king. And once he said that, that of course, there's basically all of Jewish history is pre-Rambam and post-Rambam. Because whenever Rambam says something, either you've got to agree with him, or you have to at least reckon with him. Because he was just so dominant and so major in every regard, especially in law or philosophy. Nobody could ignore him from that moment on. He ruled it's a positive commandment to set up a king, and therefore he has to explain the narratives in our books, because the narratives don't make it sound like it's a king at all. And even though Barbanel loves Rambam more than anybody, he says, in this case, I think Rambam is flat wrong. The Torah does not command kingship. The Torah permits kingship. And according to Barbanel, it actually prefers that we never have a king. So that might resonate more with us 21st century people, unless you have some monarchists among us. right? <laughs> but all the same, Barbanel is certainly much more consistent with the biblical narratives. And the assumption is, and that's the assumption that I will be going with, that monarchy was a legitimate option set out by the Torah. If you're going to have a king, it must follow certain guidelines. But it is not obligatory. Otherwise, you'll never understand the prophet Samuel tonight. Oh, my goodness. All right, yeah? Now, I have a question concerning the It means that there was anarchy. I understand the English. Right? 
the Hebrew is the same. Everybody did what was straight in his eyes, meaning people did what they wanted. There was no... The, English, the translation is great. Not always, but, but yeah. But tonight it is. So let me tell you an interesting fun fact. First of all, I think I mentioned this in the introductory shiur, but let's, let's mention it again. There's no such thing as one Samuel and two Samuel, okay? That's a total fiction. Next, this coming spring, in just a couple months, I'll actually get to teach a course called One Samuel. And I have to get in there the first time and say, this course does not exist. There's simply no such thing. I was actually delighted to hear that I'm allowed to do that. I've taught the book of Samuel several times, and there's no way you could do the whole book in one semester. So they asked me, do I want to teach all of Samuel or one Samuel? I'm like, there's a choice? I'm allowed to just teach one Samuel? That's great, because that means I could teach two Samuel the next one, and I just bought myself two semesters to teach what actually needs two semesters to do. I'm thrilled. But it's still fiction. There's no such thing as one Samuel and two Samuel. This goes back to the second temple period where all of our sacred books were still in scrolls. And scrolls can only be so big. And it got really unwieldy to have the whole book of Samuel in one scroll. So they divided it up in a perfectly normal place to divide it up. And it became one Samuel and two Samuels. But it's all fiction. And it's important because that means we need to treat the book as a book. I can do whatever I want in that course, though, now. Thrilled. But I'm going to have to make the same lamentation and say, to get this right, you really have to take both semesters. That's that, but we'll let my students... Well, huh? I'll find out when I get there. But I, It's all fiction. There's no such thing as one kings and two kings, one chronicles and two chronicles. It's all, it's all fiction. So that all being said, the contents are not fiction, but the concept of one Samuel and two Samuel, that's fiction. Okay, just make sure that that is clear. Um, so that way we can talk about the book as a book. There are four major characters in the book of Samuel. Four. A lot of minor characters. Many, many, many. There's four biggies. The four leaders of the period. You have, at the beginning of the book, you have somebody named Eli, who is the high priest, but he still functions as a shofet. He's still the religious guide. He kind of continues the period of shofetim, the period of the book of Judges. But his role also is high priest. He functions in the Mishkan at Shiloh, at the tabernacle, rather than just as a military savior. Okay, so that's significant. The second one is the prophet Shemuel, Samuel himself, who replaces Eli. Then you have the third one is King Saul. We have that. Samuel is the one who anoints and establishes the monarchy. He's the one who establishes King Saul. And then you have King David. In this book, each one of those four people has two major sons. Some of these people have more than two sons, but there are only two that count each, each time. In the case of Eli, he has two sons named Chofni and Pinchas, and they are really wicked people. They're horrible. Really, really awful. They abuse the sacrificial rite. They seem to be having all kinds of sexual encounters with women who come to pray. It's all the bad stuff. Right? So they're obviously unfit to succeed Eli. And so instead of them succeeding Eli, they end up dying prematurely. They get killed in battle. Shemuel, the prophet, who is Eli's student, succeeds him. Then, scroll forward, Shemuel gets older, and he has two sons, Yoav and Abiyah. And alas, Shemuel wants them to succeed him. He appoints them as judges. But the text makes sure that we know that these are bribe-accepting scoundrels. They're terrible. It's Prophet Samuel's sons. They're awful. So they got to go. They can't succeed him. So they get succeeded by his disciple, King Saul. In other words, the, sons are, the biological sons are out. The student is the one who wins the day. So Saul becomes king. Saul has two significant sons in our book. One is Yonatan, Jonathan, and the other one is this very lame figure named Ishbosheth. The son is literally lame, Ishbosheth is conceptually lame, but Yonatan, Jonathan, is actually the only good son of the whole book. He's extremely worthy. He's one of my all time favorite people. Love him. 
So did King David. Loves him. But by the time you meet Jonathan or Jonathan, King Saul has already forfeited the kingship because of his own sins. So Jonathan will not reign. I'm sorry. It's too, that's, that's a tragic one, right? The first two cases, it's that the sons were unworthy, so they, they're ousted. Whereas here, the son is incredibly worthy, but the father already blew it. It's over. The dynasty is done. And Ishbosheth is a temporary king for a couple of years until he gets his head chopped off by some of his officers, and that's the end of him. A lot of violence. Never read this stuff to kids. In the meantime, it's actually hard to tell a lot of these stories to children. And finally, you have David. David is the fourth and final major player, fourth and final major leader in this book. And he has two sons that matter in the book. And they are named Amnon and Absalom. Amnon is famous for raping his own half-sister, meaning David's daughter, from a different wife, Tamar. That burns up Absalom, who is the son of David, who also is the full brother of Tamar. So... Avshalom bides his time until the right moment. He kills Amnon. And then, shortly thereafter, Avshalom revolts against his father, tears the whole nation in half, eventually gets killed by the general Yoav, and that's the end of him. So, those are lovely, right? What a great way to overview the whole book. Now, but what I'm focused on is just actually one question, which is, what does all of this say about the institution of monarchy? Huh? Dynastic succession is very dangerous. Right? That's what the book is telling you. And it's worth getting this bird's eye view of the whole book so you can really see that. You realize that three out of the four kings, their sons are painfully unworthy. And so they don't deserve the kingship. And then the one son who's worthy, namely Jonathan, well, there's just hard luck on him. That by the time you and I meet him in the book, in chapter 13, Saul is already, <coughs> already losing the kingship right there, the same chapter. It's so sad. Saul's situation is very sad in general. So one message of the book is that dynastic succession, which is one of the most important elements of a monarchy, is really dangerous. Even the righteous Eli, his sons are horrible. The prophet Shmuel, Samuel, his sons are awful. King David himself, his sons are a disaster. You're right, King, King David does have another son, Solomon, who becomes the dynastic successor. That's in the book of Kings. In the book of Samuel, it would be ruined almost, or at least this scheme would be over. I wouldn't even talk about it had Solomon played a role in our book. Solomon belongs to the next literary unit, namely the book of Kings, and he, that obviously is a good succession, at least for the most part. All right, the David-Solomon succession is one of the all-time good successions, with a couple of important exceptions that we'll talk about when we get to the book of Kings. But for our purposes now, the book of Samuel is trying to say dynastic succession is really, really dangerous. But it also, the book also teaches one other thing, which is, Monarchy always starts with chaos. It's like basically the theory of, of Tanakh in general is that the world is built on chaos. It starts with creation. It was all void and desolate and a mess. God created order and the Garden of Eden. And if you don't sin, it will remain that way. Then you get the Garden of Eden the whole time, which is a good idea. Bad idea is to sin. Sin creates all kinds of terrible disharmony and exile and terrible consequences that just messes everything up. The monarchy is framed in exactly the same way. The assumption of the monarchy in the books of Samuel and Kings is that there's chaos. A righteous king brings the Garden of Eden about. A righteous king is really good. But if the king sins, ay, 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 bad news. Like, really bad. Not just for the king. It's bad news for the people of Israel. In other words, a king, by centralizing everything, is turning it into a very high-stakes proposition. A good king, when King David is at the top of his game, the world is really good. 
Right? Strong military, stability, there's righteousness in the country, there's peace in the region. He's making alliances with all these countries who for the first time are afraid of him. Good things are happening. Bathsheba, forget about it, right? Everything falls apart. His family falls apart, nation falls apart, all the alliances collapse, disaster. Same thing happens with Solomon, even though we're in the book of Kings now, right? Same thing. Instability, righteous Solomon stabilizes everything. He's phenomenal. Builds temple, God is there, people are righteous, peace in the region. He sins, <coughs> kiss it all goodbye. And so the books of Samuel and Kings, which are wrestling with what do we do with the king, its answer, the book's answers, are one and the same, which is a righteous king is the best thing that could ever happen to us, but a wicked king is pretty much the worst thing that could ever happen to us. A kingship is a very high-stakes game. With the judges, you didn't have that risk. The risk that you had was anarchy, chaos, things of that variety. So that's where we're going with this, with this book. So far, so good. That's the introduction, yeah. No, but the people did pretty well under the judges, under each judge. <coughs> under each judge, judge right. was judging. You are indeed correct, but the problem was that as soon as that judge died, it was over, and then you'd have anarchy, chaos, bad things would happen. That's why the people are sick of this. The people are sick and tired of that pattern. What they want to have is, we have a king who's there even in times of peace, who can centralize a military so people won't attack us all the time, and we know where the next leader is going to come from. That's what we're missing in the book of Judges. The people can't take it anymore. Okay, one last thing. Did you also have the idea Yes. The king is all centralized in the king. And the book of justice is, is distributed throughout the people. The people, right, do not follow God. That's when they become susceptible, vulnerable to their neighbors. Very good. So, so yeah. No, 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 your point is well taken. By the way, if, if, if you and I were reading the book of Judges, and we at least read parts of it already, let's summarize our findings based on what Sam just said, and then we're going to plunge ourselves into the book of Samuel. The cycle of judges is a disaster, including David's point that, yes, while there's a judge in charge, then things are better. But we all know, you become cynical about it. It's like, okay, he died. We all know what's going to happen next. People fall apart again. They become wicked. There's enemies come. Chaos takes years and years and years till somebody bails them out. It's horrible. If you ask the prophets, how do you fix that? Well, the people just need to be more righteous. Right? That's what the whole book is saying. Exactly your point. The people just need to be more righteous. Then there's no cycle. Then God will protect us. We won't have to worry about our enemies. That's the prophetic answer to the cycle in the book of Judges. If you ask the elders, then the town councils and elders, how do you fix this? They would say, the system of the judges doesn't work. We need a king. Right? In other words, there are two... Everybody agrees. The cycle is a disaster. Nobody likes it. I wouldn't like it either. You wouldn't like it either. It's horrible. But the way to fix it, there are two components. Religiously, the prophets are saying, if we were just all religious, none of these things would happen. Right? No Canaanite influences, Mashiach would be here, everything is great. Whereas the town elders don't want to gamble that. The town elders are saying, we're sick and tired, of the political system is a failure. We need a new political system. And that sets up the book of Samuel. What happens in the first, ready for a really fast seven chapters? Here we go, watch this. What happens is Samuel is born at the very beginning of the book and you immediately love not only him, but you love his mother, Hannah. Hannah. She is so incredible and beloved and we read about her on the first day of Rosh Hashanah. She really gets good airtime in our tradition, which is good. She, she well deserves it. You feel the sense of, here's a deeply righteous family. Her husband Elkanah is great too, although, well, 
talk about that when we have more time. But for our purposes, they're wonderful. Shmuel, Samuel's born. She dedicates him to grow up in, under Eli's tutelage. Eli, again, is the high priest and the judge at the moment, and he's very righteous. Unfortunately, Eli's own sons are disasters. They're truly wicked, horrible people, Shofni and Pinchas. They're obviously not going to succeed him. Samuel's first prophecy, God reveals, it's so cute, right? He's a little boy, and all of a sudden he hears, Shmuel, Shmuel, and he thinks it's Eli. So he runs in, yes, master, what can I do for you? And Eli's like, I didn't call you. <laughs> Go back to bed. So he goes back to bed a couple, you know, a couple minutes later, Shmuel, Shmuel. This happens three times. On the third one, Eli figures it all out. He puts two and two together. He says, actually, next time that happens, say, yes, God, what would you like? It's the only time I could think of in the whole Bible, by the way, where a prophet gets prophecy and, and it's absolutely unclear to the prophet that it's prophecy. Like when God says to Abraham, sacrifice your son, he's not thinking, oh, maybe there's some guy hiding behind the bushes who's playing a trick on me, right? He knows that it is God. The normal mode in Tanakh, the whole Bible, is when you get prophecy, you know that it's prophecy. I don't know how that works, but you know. Samuel really, what do you see? He was completely unaware of what was going on until Eli figured it out for him. The first prophecy that Samuel gets after he responds to God is, God tells Samuel, I'm furious at Eli and his sons. His sons are being so wicked and Eli for not disciplining them enough. And they're all going to go. Their dynasty is through and that's the end. So Samuel doesn't even want to tell Eli, but Eli makes him and the story goes on. Samuel is immediately <coughs> plunged into the nat- national spotlight. He is a fabulous and remarkable prophet. He does something that nobody did. He went around the country Olymp- just teaching people. That's what he did. He didn't stay home. He went all over the place. It was a hard life, but he did it. He had a vision, and he went from town to town to town to town to town, and he simply purged the entire land of Israel of all of its idolatry after centuries of that stuff. He just got it out of there. That's amazing. Then, to prove the point, and it goes back to Sam's point again, in chapter 7, there's a battle against the Philistines, who are still the predominant enemy of that period. And Samuel accompanies the army, and he prays to God after the people have repented. And God listens and delivers the Philistines into the hands of the Israelites. So here's Samuel saying, ah, this is it. This is how you break the period of the judges. We just need to be righteous. Nothing more, nothing more complicated. If we're all righteous, we got rid of the idolatry. By the way, that is a big accomplishment. You got rid of idolatry in the whole country. And not only that, idolatry now vanishes from the time of Samuel, through Saul, through David, through nearly all of King Solomon's reign, and the person who brings idolatry back to the kingdom is King Solomon at the end of his life. And that breaks this otherwise fabulous streak, best religious streak we've ever had in the Bible. Like, this is amazing. Generations of non-idolatry. And believe me, if, the, if there was idolatry, the prophets would tell you about it. We would know. No mention of idolatry at all. Samuel got rid of it. It's done. And for the next several generations, we are an idol-free country. It's really fantastic. So as far as we are concerned, if Samuel would have lived forever, Mashiach would be here. We'd all be religious. People would be stable. You'd solve the problem of the judges. Everything would be good. The problem with Samuel, as with every single human being in the history of the world, is that he was a human being. And so he got old. And the people realized, oh no, here we go again. He's going to die, and then we're going to go right back to oppression, and the Philistines are going to crush us. We have to stop this. This is our moment, and we need Samuel as a prophet to fix it. And so they come. Here's the drama. Chapter 8, source number 5. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons judges over Israel. 
which is already a mistake because we're quickly going to find out that they are corrupt. The name of his firstborn son was Yoel, and the second son's name was Abiyah. They sat as judges in Be'er Sheva. But his sons did not follow in his ways. They were bent on gain, they accepted bribes, and they subverted justice. All right. So Samuel is not immortal, so he's not going to make it. His sons are obviously unfit, and the narrator is letting us know. Because if the narrator didn't tell us this, and the elders just said, we'd like a king, we would feel the wrath of Samuel against the people. But the narrator wants us to know right off the bat, the people realize that Samuel and his sons are not the solution anymore. Samuel was the solution, but he can't be an eternal solution, and his sons obviously are not. So the elders come up, and they're very diplomatic. Bless them. uh, Verse 4. All the elders of Israel assembled and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, You have grown old, and your sons have um, not followed your ways. I love that. right? Therefore appoint a king for us to govern us like all other nations. So they very politely say, you know, your sons are, well, they're not like you, Samuel. You know, they don't want to really <coughs> shove it in his face that they're awful. But the narrator already let us know, and obviously the elders know too. Everybody understands, everybody understands except for one person in the whole kingdom, that Samuel's sons are unfit to judge. And who doesn't understand this? Samuel. Amazingly enough, the prophet of God, the greatest person in the kingdom, and one of the greatest people who ever lived, lived has a blind spot to his own children's flaws. And these are big, big, big flaws. Right? We're not talking about the, the hairbreadth mistake here. We're talking about a colossal problem, especially for a spiritual leader of the people of Israel. You can't have bribe-accepting bribe scoundrels like this in charge. But Samuel has a blind spot. And this blind spot, it's not just like a nice little, okay, good, dear parents, make sure, you know, pay attention to your kids, and, and you know, don't, everybody has a blind spot to their children's flaws. We all know that. But... This creates something that's really interesting, and that's what we're going to focus on tonight. For the first seven chapters, God and Samuel are so absolutely in sync because prophets are the most in sync with God people in the history of the world, right? God tells them what to do. God gives them a vision. They are absolutely living and breathing God, and their job is to deliver God's message to people. That's what they do. But here, Samuel has personal feelings. He has involvement in our stories tonight that we're going to look at. And when you're personally involved, I don't care how great of a prophet you are, that means you're receiving God's word, but you also have your own opinion. And in this particular case, we see a clash between God and the prophet. It's a subtle clash, but we'll, we'll see it very bluntly right over here. And it all comes back to the fact that Samuel, on the one hand, represents God's interests. That's his job. He's a prophet. But he also is representing his own interests and his son's interests. And that's the problem. But it's really fascinating as a prophetic narrative to see the prophet actually not quite being on the same page as God. It's unusual to see this so bluntly, but here you're going to see it. So the people ask for a king. Verse 6, Samuel was displeased that they said, give us a king to govern us. He was saying, what, a king? No. So if you ask Samuel, if you interviewed him, you know, right after, right after he blows up at them, which he's going to. So Samuel, why are you so dead set against a king? What would he tell you? What would he tell you? God is the king. king. That's exactly right. He will say that explicitly in chapter 12. That's exactly what Gideon said last week in chapter 8 of Judges. God is our king. How dare you ask for a human king? We're Israelites. We don't have kings. Which goes back to the point that obviously Samuel doesn't think that there is a commandment to have a king. Because otherwise he wouldn't fuss like this. But they mentioned the whole 
Right, so Rashi raises that issue, that the problem was that they wanted to be like other nations. The difficulty with Rashi's reading here, first of all, is that the narrative doesn't support him, right? It says, in verse 6, what we just read, Samuel was displeased that they said, give us a king to govern us. It doesn't say about the nations. And plus, as a bonus, if you go back to source number 3, I think it was, the passage in the Torah, the very formulation of the Torah is, if after you have entered the land that your Lord, your God, has assigned to you and taken possession of it and settled in it, you decide, I will set a king over me as do all the nations about me. It's exactly that expression. So the people are simply reflecting the language of the Torah. They don't want to assimilate. They don't want to have a pagan kingship. They don't want to have a king that resembles the gods in one form or another. They want a king like other peoples have kings. In other words, we need a kingship because the judgeship doesn't work at all. Right? So the, the, reading, the, the simplest reading of our text is that Samuel opposes the institution of monarchy, period. And he would tell you in an interview, it's all because God is our king. And by the way, that is a sincere answer on his part. It's a very principled position that he has. But if you analyze him, you would find that there's another side to him which is not mutually exclusive to that. Let's look at a couple more verses here. Verse 7. Now we're back in source 5. Verse 7. The Lord replied to Samuel, Heed the demand of the people in everything they say to you. For it is not you they have rejected, it is me they have rejected as their king. If you ask God, hey Samuel, what's bugging you? not even your children here. What does God say in seven? Don't take it personally. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Meaning Samuel obviously took this as a personal rejection. And then throw in, you're right. He also is upset because his children are going to lose their positions. God himself reflects back. And Rambam picks this up already. Malbim picks this up. Several commentators down the line understand that God's response gives us the other side that Samuel would not say in an interview. The interview is, God is your king. That's all he would say. I oppose the kingship because God opposes monarchy. Right? Whereas, God is saying, well, Samuel, you also have personal feelings here. You feel personally rejected, and you feel that your children are being rejected. Now, listen to God. God God is always amazing, of course, but here he's going to do something that literally only God can do. Right? Which is a really neat move. The people are saying, we must have a king. That's their whole argument. We're sick and tired of the judges. It's done. Samuel, we wish you could live forever. You're not going to. We've got to change the system. We must have a king. Samuel is saying even more than over my dead body. He's saying, absolutely not. This is against Israel's rules. We don't have kings. God is our king. These are mutually exclusive positions. Now watch God's neat little trick that only God can pull off here. So let's look at 7 again. And the Lord replied to Samuel, Heed the demand of the people in everything they say to you. For it is not you that they have rejected. It is me that they have rejected as their king. Like everything else they have done ever since I brought them out of Egypt to this day. Forsaking me and worshipping other gods, so they are doing to you. Heed their demand, but warn them solemnly and tell them about the practices of any king who will rule over them. So what's God's response? Is kingship good or bad? It's bad. Not only is it bad, but what does God himself liken it to? Idolatry. If God is calling anything idolatry, you better watch out. God doesn't take idolatry well. We all know that God is a zealous God and and a jealous God. He doesn't like competition. By linking the monarchy to idolatry, God is saying, the king competes with my role. Right? And that's very, very dangerous. 
So does God, do, do God and Samuel agree here? Absolutely not. How come they, how come not? Because God says, give them a king. God is actually espousing the mutually exclusive positions here. He's saying they need a king. And he's saying, and boy, oh boy, is kingship religiously dangerous. It threatens me, says God. So Samuel is focused on the it threatens God part. And the people are focused on we must have a king part. And in just a couple of sentences, God handles both. God completely puts together kingship is incredibly dangerous and threatening to God's rule. And simultaneously, it's, it's necessary. God is granting their wish. Isn't it what's maybe the difference between what's in the forum and what's in Shmuel is where it says in the forum it says some can see the right. so part of it is that you should ask God to point the king. They don't they ask Sam to point the king. So when you look in now in Shmuel, when when it's it's sort of ambiguous, I think in, in the Hebrew, uh, you know, when he talks about when Hashem talks about Avodazara. He may be referring to, they're asking you, they didn't ask me to point king, which is what I told them to do. If you want a king, whether it's optional or not, you're supposed to have king, God appoint king. They went to you. Right, but how, are they, but how are they going to get God to appoint the king? What are they doing? They're going to the prophet. They didn't, but they, they're going to the prophet. But they didn't ask, they didn't ask the words. That this is, this is the words. This is, this is the, there's the, if you and I were the town elders who wanted a king and you wanted to ask God, we're not prophets. We'd say, hey God, who should be the king? God's not going to answer us. You go to the, that would be another means, but... You have a prophet there. This is this is a perfectly legitimate thing that's happening. Not only is it perfectly legitimate, it's actually what I expect the people to do. They're handling this religiously. Yeah. Well, the whole of going to kind of skip over a little bit, but that's actually part of God's response. Is the kahol going again? That where is it? I'm giving a hearing. So that God Himself seems to be saying that the things that's mimicking. Right, so, so again, so it goes back to, to Isaac's question. I don't agree with that reading. I don't, I don't think that God and Samuel oppose the nature of the request. Samuel opposes the very request for a king, and that's how the narrative says it. it has not, there is no way they could have requested a king that Samuel would have approved of. If they said, well, so that we can keep God's laws. And if they said, we want to keep God's laws and we want to be religious, Samuel would say, good idea, guys. Keep God's laws, but still don't have a king. Kingship is bad. Then why is it because God disagrees with Samuel. That's what I'm trying to say. God and Samuel are not on the same page. Both of them agree kingship is incredibly threatening to God's reign. But God is saying, but kingship is also necessary. Samuel never sees that other side, ever. Samuel never will approve. You could ask him in a thousand different ways. Samuel will always say no. And my argument is the reason why he will always say no is because he's blending the objective word of God with his subjective feelings on this matter. The objective word of God is that kingship is necessary but dangerous. Samuel's point of view is, forget about that necessary stuff, kingship also threatens Samuel and his sons. That's the part that God doesn't have to see. That's the part that Samuel can't overcome. Result, there is daylight between God and Samuel. Let me prove it to you. I can, I, huh? Huh? Let me prove it to you. The very next chapter is that sweet little story where Saul is looking for his father's donkeys and he's roaming around and so finally this lad says, hey, there's a prophet in town here, why don't we just go to the prophet? And maybe, you know, they think of him as a crystal ball reading type of prophet. They don't realize prophecy is a little weightier than that. And so they go to him 
And it's so sweet, and, and you know, Saul's going to come to Samuel himself, because that's the way it's always got to be, right? Excuse me, sir, is the prophet around? And Samuel, very, you know, I am the prophet. It's like such a beautiful, I love it. But before Saul actually gets to Samuel, source number six, God tells Samuel, Saul is coming. The future king is coming your way. At this time tomorrow, I will send a man to you from the territory of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him ruler of my people Israel. He will deliver my people from the hands of the Philistines, for I have taken note of my people. Their outcry has come to me. Only God could say this. Samuel never could say this verse. What is God saying here? Why should there be a king? We need a king. God understands the people very well. Samuel never will understand the people very well. He thinks that the people are evil. He thinks the people are rejecting God by requesting a king. All they need to do is be righteous. That's Samuel's perspective, and he will never change that. God's perspective is, Samuel, you're right. Kingship is incredibly dangerous, and the people need to be righteous. God agrees with all of that, all of that statement. But, but the people are right. A king actually could bring a lot of good. When God says, here, I want to give them a king because I've heard their outcry, and I understand that they're right, that's God saying kingship is dangerous but necessary, and this verse focuses on the necessary part. This sets out this incredible, again, daylight between God and the prophet Samuel, and I think it all boils down to Samuel has this component of personal feelings in there, that he feels personally rejected and he feels that his children are rejected. What happens next is Saul, uh, Samuel anoints Saul and immediately blasts the people for being sinners at the coronation. Like, you know, Samuel gets the podium, and before we introduce our first ever king, let me just tell you guys, you are a bunch of horrible, evil sinners for wanting a king. You're rejecting God by doing this. Poor Saul. He hears this. The next thing you know, he's hiding in the baggage claim. He doesn't even want to be, you know, and now the spotlight goes over there and he's gone. And part of that might be that he was shy and, you know, meek in that particular way. But part of it could well be, if you're the prophet of God saying that you are a result of the people's sin and you've never heard that before, that's pretty devastating. And so Saul starts off his kingship feeling horrible. He then wins a war, so suddenly the people love him. And then everybody decides, you know, the first coronation was kind of a dud. Why don't we do it again? And so they do it again, and Samuel once again gets to the podium. And and by the way, chapter 12 is the last public address of the prophet Samuel to the people in the book. So here's his last chance to speak to everybody. And Saul is right there. There's a chance to win back favor and just say, here is the king that God has appointed to help you with your military thing. And remember, you still have to be righteous. That would have been a fine speech. But Samuel's not going there, because Samuel has a lot of different variables that he wants to bring into play. And that brings us to source seven. Then Samuel said to all Israel, here we are at the beginning of the second coronation speech, I have yielded to you in all you have asked of me, and have set a king over you. Henceforth, the king will be your leader. As for me, I have grown old and gray, but my sons are still with you. Isn't that amazing that at this late stage in the game, at the second coronation speech, it's like, guys, my kids, they're, well, they're bribe-accepting scoundrels. They're unfit to rule. Even if kingship is the wrong idea, his sons are definitely the wrong idea. Right? But you see, even at his last public speech, he feels mortally wounded by the whole thing. And you see his personal feelings coming out even before he gets to the objective side. The divine side of the picture. He feels, very, he feels very upset. And he's expressing himself that way. He said, hey, you rejected my sons. Not only that, 
As for me, I've grown, I already read that, and I've been your leader from my youth to this day. Here I am, testify against me in the presence of the Lord and in the presence of his anointed one, meaning the king. Whose ox have I taken? Whose ass have I taken? You're taking this very, very personally, right? You're saying, have I wronged any of you that you wanted a king? What's wrong with me and my sons? So the people would answer the way that we understand they have to answer, which is, Samuel, you're great, but you're old. You're not going to live forever. We can't count on eternal reign from you. And your sons, bless them, are terrible. Right? The narrator already gave us all the answers to these questions. The people can't really say that at the coronation because that would look bad. But we all know the answers to these questions. But Samuel still imagines that he and his children will continue to lead as prophet judges. Right? Even though we know that that is false. Because the narrator has told us that it is false. But here's Samuel saying that. Whom I defrauded or who am I robbed? From whom have I taken a bribe to look the other way? I will return it to you. And the people say, no, Samuel, you've been great. You know, there's this whole chorus of, you're honest. We love you, Samuel. Long live Samuel. But you're not going to live forever. This passage happens to be the Haftarah for the parashah that we read in the summertime called Korach. The great mutiny in the desert. Where Korach, Datan, Abiram, they all have their different axes to grind cause a lot of problems and headaches and all kinds of fireworks happen where Moses has to swing into action, fight the Korach crew who want to become the priests, fight Datan and Aviram who want to take over Moses' job. They think he's a failed leader. There's an earthquake. Fire comes from heaven. A storm. Everybody dies. The key rebels die. People side with the rebels anyway. More people. It's a mess. Right? Well, the reason why it's the Haftarah in part is because of source number eight. When Moses got personally attacked at this low moment during the Korach rebellion, Moses was much aggrieved and he said to the Lord, pay no regard to their oblation. I have not taken the ass of any one of them, nor have I wronged any one of them. Same words. So that's, that's the link. So on a, on a direct level, Samuel is saying, you bunch of lousy sinners. How dare you ask for a king? You're rejecting me. You're rejecting my sons. And more importantly, you are rejecting God. But by making this parallel, what is Samuel telling the people? Hey guys, I'm Moses. You're Korach. Look what happened to them. Right? That's what he's doing here. He's the Moses figure in this story. He's the prophet king. And now he's saying, you people who are asking for a king, you're the great rebels. And boy, oh boy, God does remarkable things to these great rebels in the Korach story. You better watch out. And then Samuel surveys Jewish history. Nobody ever surveys history for the sake of surveying history in in Tanakh. They're always to teach a lesson. Here the lesson is, look guys, we've sinned before, we'll sin again. The solution to sinning and enemies is prayer and repentance. That's the solution. That's what we've always done. And God has always saved us. When we repent and we pray, God is with us. But then you had an enemy and you said, we want a king. Meaning you are breaking rank with the entirety of our history. Everybody else seemed to know exactly what to do. When you're in trouble, you pray and you repent, trouble goes away. But you broke rank. And that's verse 12 over here. We're back in source 7. But when you saw that Nachash, king of the Ammonites, was advancing against you, you said to me, no, we must have a king reigning over us. Though the Lord your God is your king, how dare you, says the prophet Samuel. Everybody else, nobody ever dreamed of having a king. They all understood. We pray and repent. Problem solved. But you say the solution is change the system of government to one that threatens God's reign. But God is your king. 
So Samuel therefore says, Now stand by and see the marvelous thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. It is the season of the wheat harvest. I will pray to the Lord, and he will send thunder and rain. Then you will take thought and realize what a wicked thing you did in the sight of the Lord when you asked for a king. So here's the second coronation, and and Saul just better find a very big hole to crawl into, right? Because the prophet of God is getting up there and saying, See this king over here? He's still a product of your sin, your Korach. And now comes a thunder and lightning storm, which in the Korach story left a lot of people dead. Right? So you understand, this is going to terrify the daylights out of them, rightly so. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, Intercede for your servants with the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins the wickedness of asking for a king. So he prayed, he said, Don't worry, you won't die. It's not quite like the Korach rebellion, but it pretty much is. So what Samuel is saying, it, it, it's, it's overwhelming. He gets up there and just tell, he, he laid out all the variables for us perfectly in chapter 12. The whole thesis, that's, that's why it's my thesis, because it's explicit in the mouth of the prophet. Samuel rejects the institution of monarchy because it threatens God's kingship, because it threatens him, and because it threatens his children. Right? So there's the objective component, threatening God, and there's the subjective component, threatening him and his children. The people don't want to threaten God. (laughs) That's not their business. But they don't agree that Samuel and his children are the answer, and we know that they're right. And that's why there's daylight between God and the prophet. God is saying kingship is necessary but dangerous. Samuel is saying it is just pure, horrible, bad. And that's, it's remarkable to actually see this daylight between king, between prophet and God. You should know, by the way, that all later prophets, beginning with Nathan the prophet and God, G.A.D., the prophet who will succeed Samuel, they all accept the institution of monarchy. All of them. <coughs> Nobody protests the existence of a king. Their job will be, and always will be, to try to keep the kings in line. Make sure that they are righteous. Make sure that they are fair. Make sure that they don't think that they are above the law. But none of them will say the institution of monarchy is null and void. Because they all accept God's position, which is monarchy is necessary but dangerous. A good king can bring a lot of good to the country. Right? They all accept that. Samuel never can accept that because for him there's a personal dimension that blinds him to the good in the people's request. Okay, so now that we have all of that, when Saul sins... And God comes to Samuel and says, Saul, uh, Samuel, Saul blew it. I reject him. So what's Samuel's response going to be, if you don't know? Yeah! It should be that I told you so. It's like, God, hooray. Maybe now we can go back to the judges. Maybe my sons can reign. That's what I'm waiting for. But something remarkable happens in source number nine. God tells Samuel, when he leaves the king of Amalek alone, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from me and has not carried out my commands. Samuel was distressed, and he entreated the Lord all night long. What happened? Not only is this not an I told you so, which is exactly what I was expecting too, even though I knew that source number nine was coming down the pike, and I know what it says, it doesn't matter. I'm so convinced that Samuel is going to say, Ha! The institution of monarchy failed. The king sinned. He's done. Come on, God, let's change the game now. No. He's broken. And he mourns. And he doesn't want to set up the new king. He wants Saul. What happened? He loves him. He absolutely loves the person Saul. Saul is his disciple. Saul is a genuinely lovely person. 
He's really wonderful. He's humble. He's righteous. He's faithful to the people of Israel. He's an excellent general. Everybody liked the fact that he was incredibly tall and handsome. But that's the shallow piece of the puzzle. But the fact of the matter is, he was a very righteous person. When Samuel anointed Saul in chapter 10, he actually took him up to a rooftop, anointed him with special anointing oil, like in the sign of a crown. It's a way of saying, God has chosen you. And then he gave him a kiss. You know how often prophets kiss kings, even the good ones? Answer to the rest of Tanakh, never again. Prophets don't kiss kings. Kings don't kiss prophets either. Usually there's a little bit of tension between those two institutions because the prophets are trying to keep the kings in line and kings don't like that, right? But Samuel kisses Saul. Saul becomes to him like a son. He loves Saul. So just as he stuck up for his own kids back in the day, once God says, no, Saul is going to be king, and Samuel loves him anyway, suddenly Samuel loves him very personally. And when God says, Saul is fired, we're going to have to get a new king, Samuel goes into a deep state of depression. He loves Saul. He wants Saul. So much so that even though God himself told Samuel, right? This is no surmising here. God told Samuel, it's over. Saul's got to go. We need a replacement. Samuel does nothing. So what happens in source number 10? God has to yell at him a little bit. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? There's still daylight between God and the prophet. Now, instead of daylight between God and the prophet over the institution of monarchy, now the daylight is over Saul, the person. Samuel loves Saul and wants him to remain the king. And God says, well, he's sinned. He's done. He cannot remain as king. So God said, enough already. Stop mourning. We need a new king. I told you. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite from Beit Lechem, right? For I have decided on one of his sons to be king. Samuel replied, despite an explicit divine command, Samuel replied, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. The Lord answered, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Okay, play a trick. Pretend that you're bringing sacrifices. Sneak into Jesse's house. You can anoint him. Nobody will know what's going on. So many of our commentators feel that Samuel is genuinely right to be afraid of Saul. After all, the prophet anointing a new king in Saul's lifetime is an act of rebellion against the throne. Right? To be fair, it's coming from God, right? We know that. Samuel knows that. But it's still an act of rebellion, and Saul may not take that well. And that's what Samuel fears, if you take him at his word. But Abarbanel says, no. He's not afraid of Saul. Saul's his buddy. They love each other. Saul's not going to hurt the prophet. What's Samuel doing? He's trying to stall. He's trying to play games and stall with God. He's making excuses. He doesn't want to go. He's saying, God, I really don't want to go. I do not want to appoint Saul's successor because I love Saul. If you're not going to let me sit around and mope and be depressed, I'm still not going to go because I'm afraid. God's like... Forget it. Just go, right? right? According to Barbanel, this is all part of this desperate plea of Samuel. Please, 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 let's have Saul. Did God specifically designate Saul because he came from the wrong tribe? That's an interesting question in its own right. I, I have no answer for you because the book of Samuel, amazingly, doesn't take up the issue of why the first king of Israel was from the tribe of Benjamin rather than the tribe of Judah, which is what Jacob already... Jacob promised on his deathbed Judah would get the kingship. So when David gets it, we're all nodding our heads, right? But that's why I always have the feeling that, as you pointed out, Samuel didn't want to lose power. 
And he picked somebody knowing what came from the wrong tribe. Right, but, but God, God picked them. God, God appointed them fair and square. The, the funniest answer I ever heard to this question, by the way, I was a scholar in residence in England in like 2007 and got to wear this really awesome top hat. They had to give me a lesson in how to wear the hat. That was really fun. So while I was there, I gave some talk about something, nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight. But somehow, you know, there, there's, there's, you know this man isn't, there's always one person like this, right? He has his theory and he just wants to share it with you because you're in town. So he came over to me afterwards, and it had nothing to do with what I was talking about, but it was cool anyway. And he said, I, I can tell you why Saul's from Benjamin. I'm like, really? Because I have no answer to that one at all. Bring it. <laughs> so in the finest Queen's English, he told me that his theory was every other tribe had a fair shape. Reuven was the firstborn. Okay, so you know he's not going to win, but don't get me started. But in the meantime, he blew it with Bilhaf, you know the story. So that he's done. Shimon and Levi have the whole Shechem episode. They're done. Judah, okay, he's in charge right now. Yisachar and Zebulun are minor. The sons of the maids never have a chance. Joseph has a chance, but, but Judah outflanks him. But Benjamin was a little boy during all of those stories. And therefore, he never even had a chance to blow. So God wanted to give the tribe of Benjamin one shake. So Saul was the shake. So God, I thought it was a very cool theory. Again, and, and once he blows it, okay, so now fair and square, Judah gets it and uncontested. It's as good as any other theory. I, I like it. What, what I care about more is that the book of Samuel simply never takes up your question. It's not bothered at all. Why did God choose the first king from the tribe of Benjamin? It doesn't ask the question. It doesn't answer the question. It was Saul, and Saul could have reigned for a very long time. Right? But he didn't because he sinned. Okay. So let's get back over to here. So Samuel comes, right? Verse 6. When they arrived and he saw Eliav, that's the firstborn, so you and I already know, he ain't going to make it, but okay. He thought, this meaning Samuel thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before him. Now remember, God said, I'll tell you which one it is, but Samuel jumps to the conclusion, it's Eliav, the firstborn. But of course, Samuel knows better than just to choose him because he's the firstborn. God explains why he chose him. But the Lord said to Samuel, pay no attention to his appearance or his stature, for I have rejected him. For not as man sees does the Lord see. Man sees only what is visible, but the Lord sees into the heart. Okay, so he's tall, good looking. So I, I, I want a different son of Jesse, the one who has the best heart, and that, of course, will be David. Give me, give me one second here. So first of all, why did Samuel jump to conclusions? Like, why can't he just wait for God to tell him something? And more importantly, look. I understand, I remember when Ross Perot ran for president years ago, and the New York Times simply ran a graph. He can't win because he's under six feet tall. Americans like tall presidents because everybody throughout all of history likes tall leaders. That's the way that goes. People are shallow. Saul, it's emphasized time and again how tall he is. He's taller than anybody else. That's why the people loved him so much. Okay, so people are shallow. But this is the prophet Samuel, who is in direct communication with God who has value system of, there are some traits that are better than tall, such as a good heart, such as a deeply religious spirit, such as other things that we actually treat as virtues. Tall is nice, but, it, but it's, it's really not what it's all about. How in the world did he fall for that? So some commentators say, well, he's not falling for anything, but he figures, since people are shallow, so he's tall, he's probably the one that people will like, so God will choose him. But Radak thinks otherwise. Radak in the 13th century looks right on through that. Why did he choose Eliab? He doesn't care about Eliav. He doesn't know his character at all. But Eliav reminds him of Saul. 13th century insight for you, folks. It's fantastic. Right? Radak understands that Samuel still can't get over, still can't get over Saul. So if I can't have Saul, I need somebody who looks like him. 
So God is like, enough already. I want David. It's done. Right? So David becomes the king. Samuel anoints him, doesn't kiss him, doesn't talk to him, goes home. They never have an in They have one encounter in chapter 19 when David is already fleeing. But we don't even know what they say to each other. He has no relationship with David. What Samuel does after this episode is he retreats from national life. And he opens up a prophecy school. And actually trains the next generations of prophets. It's really cool. And it was a good idea because he realized, after all, that he was not going to live forever. And we need prophets who are going to keep these kings in line. Because obviously God wants there to be kings. So I need people who are going to be able to keep them religiously in place. And so his disciples and their disciples down the line became the ones who rose up as the next generations of prophets. So let's summarize what we have going for us over here because we're winding down already. What's fascinating about the first 16 chapters of the book of Samuel, which is what we've just done in under an hour, all right, survey courses have their, have their covering ground merits, and then the downside of, oh, so many things I want to talk to you about, but we'll save that for another time. Um, the first seven chapters, there's no daylight between God and Samuel at all. It's like classic God-prophet relationship. Samuel is ideal, he brings the people closer to God, he abolishes idolatry, becomes a national leader, gets everybody to repent, wins a battle as a result of that, meaning the cycle of judges is broken. The problem is the people realize he's not going to live forever. His sons are corrupt, so that's, that's done. So they say it's time to change the system of government. And that question, which was a fair question to ask, and God treats it as a fair question to ask, creates a rift between God and the prophet. It's amazing. Not only between prophet and people, which is in your face, not only between prophet and the king, because there's a lot of tension over there, but between God and the prophet. Because God is saying repeatedly, kingship is dangerous but necessary. And Samuel is saying kingship is terrible. Kingship is an outrage against God. And again, I, I believe that the reason why Samuel can't see the other side is because of his personal rejection. He feels personally rejected. He feels that his children are rejected, never sees beyond that. Once he finally grants that Saul is king, he then loves Saul so much that he still can't accept God's rejection of the king. He wants Saul. And if not Saul, okay, some other tall guy. Right? Something that reminds you of Saul. It's an amazing, amazing situation that we've been seeing right now, where Samuel, one of the great prophets in the history of our people, led the people to unprecedented heights, did amazing, amazing things. But this one political issue, this religion-politics thing, was never a good idea. But here's where you really see a clash in religion and politics in, in, in biblical language, right? Where, because of this political shift that the people really, really, really want to have... Samuel and God end up having a tension between them. It will only be all the later prophets that Samuel helps raise up who accept the institution of monarchy. And by the way, not only do they accept the institution of monarchy, but if you look at all the messianic prophecies of many of our prophets, very often one of the ingredients of their utopian age is the messianic king. Right? So not only do they see kingship as potentially good, they see it as potentially ideal if you have a righteous king. And that will be the position of all later prophets, beginning with Natan and God and all the way down through the biblical period. Righteous kings are great for our country. Wicked kings or sinful kings are a major league disaster. Next week, unfortunately, we're going to have to start dealing... Oh, no, next week we just have Thanksgiving and happy Thanksgiving for that. For, for that. So next week, again, there's no Shi'ur because of Arab Thanksgiving. But happy Thanksgiving all the same. Huh? Two weeks from today. In other words, there's two more in this cycle which will be you know, the first two weeks of December, whatever the exact, like two and nine or so. But, 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 but you know, the, the, the first two weeks of December. That's point number one. Point number two, I announced at the beginning of this year, I will announce again, the Institute for Jewish Ideas and Ideals, which is co-sponsoring this whole series. I'm its national scholar, 
Thank you, by the way, to those of you who have joined so far. If others of you want to join anytime, anywhere, uh, it's, you can go to our website, jewishideas.org, both to register or to, or to join, but also to hear whatever shiurim you might have missed from this series. They're now all posted online at jewishideas.org. And what you would do once you get there is towards the upper right-hand corner of the screen, there's something called online learning. Click on that and you will find what you are looking for. So if you've missed a shiur or two or even three, whatever it is, all of them should be there with the source sheets. On that happy note, I wish everybody a wonderful Thanksgiving.